and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 104 on uh, February 24th, 2023. Glad to have you back. We have a special episode for you this week. Um, my colleague Jalosowski from Consumer Choice Radio has asked me to do a, a joint episode, so I was a guest on their podcast. And because the topics really do match for a European audience, I thought let's just use that episode as well. Uh, because I'm currently in Washington, D.C. to attend the USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum. So I'll be back next week with the regular type of episode. So uh, take this away. It was a great conversation. And uh, you've been a constant guest on this program, uh, obviously doing the, some pitch hitting, helping us out every now and then, and, and always providing great feedback and comment. Um, Bill, for those of you who may not know, is um, our senior policy analyst at the Consumer Choice Center, and he is a, uh, a very constant and active voice in uh, many different newspapers, uh, online articles in different languages. And uh, he's coming to us uh, with some great perspective on this week's news. Uh, Dave, uh, David and probably got to mention it um, in the last couple of weeks. I haven't been able to, but there's been a, a lot of talk about alcohol regulation in Canada and in other places. Um, in the U.S., we're still a bit, uh, still a bit open to, uh, to the old beer. Uh, Canada has uh, this particular circumstance where the, uh, the government is now recommending that the maximum is two drinks per week. Uh, we've had on Professor Dan Malik to discuss that and uh, a few others. And uh, Bill, I know that you're you're kind of dealing with some alcohol regulation stuff over on the European continent. Uh, the uh, the good old Irish, uh, which I believe it's in Ireland, where you can't drink on Easter. Is that right? Can't buy beer on Easter? Or is it one of these? I'm not exactly sure, and not sure if they'd be able to enforce that. I think definitely the Irish wouldn't be able to enforce the two drinks uh, a week. I think two drinks per hour would be even difficult to enforce in Ireland. But the Irish have a new idea, which is to uh, enforce a new label. So that label is supposed to look similar to the ones that you can see uh, in, in, in large parts of Europe already uh, on cigarettes. Many people will, will know these, the, the warning labels, the signs that tell you that uh, cigarettes can cause cancer. The same should apply to alcohol, say uh, the Irish uh, parliamentarians and some health bodies that advocate for this. Um, and then on top of that, there might even be shock images. I'm not exactly sure if it's going to be a beer belly or something else. Uh, but in any case, uh, it's something that the Irish are proposing and that faces some backlash from uh, European countries that are big alcohol producers. So Italy, Spain, um, and, and France, which are big wine producers, they say that this label uh, would be unfair to them. Wow, you said beer belly. Hit me right in the gut there, Bill. Uh, well, yeah, this is um, something that we saw increasingly, obviously, with tobacco products, vaping products, um, also with any products made uh, with products known to the state of California to cause cancer. Um, that's Proposition 65. So a lot of plastics made in the U.S. also have these warning labels on them. And um, I guess, you know, we just don't trust our citizenry and our consumers enough that we need to constantly warn them about stuff they already know about. Bill, is that, is that uh, kind of what it comes down to? Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it's part of these kind of feel-good measures. You know, they think that they're going to solve the problem by just adding a label. And what is very interesting is that uh, some of this has already been studied. So when they did studies on with eye-tracking um, with consumers to see whether they're actually checking out warning labels, um, 
uh, 60% um, of the customers, of the consumers that they that they that they tested this on, uh, have previously looked at the warning labels uh, at all, right? So there are some warning labels that are sort of self-regulation. For instance, you know the warning label that says that uh, that pregnant women shouldn't drink alcohol. Even those aren't really checked out by anyone. And you know the the eye tracking shows that the more people see the labels, the less they feel impressed by them. And I think there's another point in here as well, which is, which is what you mentioned with California. If you over-label, then eventually you make consumers relativize the risks. Because if coffee causes cancer and your glass of wine causes cancer, then you, know, you relativize and say, well, I mean, this is on everything, so why, can, why would cigarettes be this bad? Um, so ultimately, what you do with these with this overlabeling is you sort of distort the message, and you distort it away from the products that are actually dangerous. I mean, I was just interviewing on on, on the European podcast uh, somebody who talked about chemophobia, and with what they do is tests with children. Um, to see how children perceive risks when it comes to chemical products. So these are cleaning products that you have in your, on your shelf at home uh, and, and sort of see what attracts children. And that's something that I think should be explored. If children see sort of the danger logos on everything, including consumer products that are being consumed, then children might also relativize the risks of those too by saying, well, this is just something that they put on everything. So, you know, it's hard to understand dosage and, 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 and the risk associated with products when everything has a label. It's a strange world out there. Absolutely. Um, I think in many cases, um, I don't have the scientific studies as you do to back it up, but I would assume that people would actually be drawn more to those warning labels because uh, those are sometimes used in marketing too. It's just like, warning, there'll be an explosion of flavor in your mouth you know, as you buy the extra box of uh, Frosted Flakes and the like. And uh, you're totally right. We become desensitized to it. Uh, it's certainly the case with Prop 65. I mean, I'm I, I mentioned that example because I've seen this with too many products. I just buy a little kiddie pool or, you know, some toys for the beach. Um, this product contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer. And, and what's so funny about that is that when this is Proposition 65 that was voted in, in the 80s in the state of California, and because California is such a huge base of manufacturing and uh, population, Basically, every large manufacturer in the U.S. has had to adopt this. So there's a big list of about 800 chemicals. And if any of those chemicals are somehow in your process for putting together your product, you have to put that label or you get a huge fine by the state of California. So that's, we just have it on absolutely everything. It's on your espresso machine. It's on your uh, little kiddie pool. Um, you know, I'm sure it's on like a little water gun. You know, there's all kinds of, of things that are going on there. And I think this is this has always been the issue. People know certain risks. You know, if there's something that has uh, there was a big thing many years ago about BPA, you know, BPA free water bottle. This is a sort of big thing. And perhaps it helps to have consumer education on that. But oftentimes the mandated government labels kind of muddy the waters and we don't necessarily have, you know, the truth. There's all kinds of things that I see now. Uh, for these new alternative, um, I would call them hipster products. You know, I don't, I don't know what the latest ones you might have seen. I, I've definitely BPA free. Sometimes I've seen plastic free. Just like, okay. <laughs> so it was like my straws, my very inefficient straws. Uh, but we, we're seeing that across many other product categories. And again, many times we're just infantilizing consumers more than people might believe. But I think many in the uh, relative establishments, whether being the anti-alcohol crowd or anti-vaping crowd, is just kind of par for the course. 
I spent a lot of time in in Turkey, where half, more than half the population has never touched has never touched a, a drop of alcohol, um, and and there the government still tries to crack down on alcohol consumption um, for the other half of the population by raising the prices. And what it causes, especially in the rural communities, is that people make their own alcohol, and that causes a, a vast array of different problems, even compared to countries where most of the population consumes uh, alcohol in Europe. So um, this is this is one of those things where, I mean, in Turkey, it is based on the religious element of the government, where the government just doesn't want you to drink because it, it thinks it needs to implement some type of version of Islam into, into, into the state. Um, but the public health advocates have a bit of a similar... Um, um, uh, outlook. They're not motivated by religion, but it's it's an almost like religious type approach. It's uh, they're, they're in this sort of messianic state where they uh, where they want to um, protect you so that you can live to a very old age. So you, I don't know, presumably can pay more taxes or something like that. But ultimately, this is sort of their this is this is this is their approach where everything they 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 they. they Un, they, they misallocate uh, the whole concept of dosage, of hazard versus risk. So everything that can potentially cause you harm, it doesn't matter whether it's a drop or a whole bottle. So they, they just don't draw that distinction and they stigmatize people um, who enjoy things in moderation. Uh, and, and we have this with so many conversations, whether it's gambling, whether it's alcohol, whether it's uh, nicotine consumption. It's, it's a lot about you know knowing yourself and, and trusting individuals to make the right choices. And that just completely goes out the window with uh, with suggestions such as the one in Ireland. Oh, boy, don't drink too much. Because you'd be in jail. Um, one thing that I think this relates to is uh, there's the author Michael Crichton, one of my favorite authors. Uh, he wrote a book called State of Fear. And uh, he gave a lot of speeches towards the end of his career where he would mention environmentalism. And what he was kind of mentioning at that point is, is that the, the modern environmentalism that exists is not just about cleaning the rivers and making sure that you know, parks stay nice. It really has to do with this kind of religious zeal that has very little to do with the environment and everything to do with a type of control or a narrative. And it's gone very far from the origins of a true environmentalist movement. And there are all kinds of parallels. And, you know, we're, uh, we're from Catholic countries, so we can talk all day about, uh, you know, the role of the Catholic Church and how, you know, less people are going to church. And now people are replacing that with, with other things. And in uh, some countries, socialism, I was able to come in and do a replacement. But today, uh, you could say that you have different types of in my environmental activism or public health activism, you know, things that are filling the void. You know, some of us um, just put it all on chat GPT, but it depends on uh, sort of your, your flavor of the day. And all of that is just a bit, it leaves us that it's stuff outside the scope of what government regulation can or can't do. It's, it's almost a moral question. And the issue with moral questions in political matters is that political matters are constrained by constitutions, by laws, by regulations moral issues are not constrained by anything. And you could apply morality to law in certain ways, and that would mean that a lot of people would have much less freedom. So it kind of worries me a bit. Um, Puritanism is something that is on the rise in many different aspects of our culture. The U.S. has always been like that, a bit more with sex. Uh, Europeans, not so much. Um, obviously, alcohol is, is another one where Europeans excel, but uh, apparently the Irish 
or uh, just taking another page out of the book. But <laughs> in a Catholic country, too. What's up with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm waiting for the time where there's going to be warning labels on the, you know, for the Catholic mass, um, uh, for the for the priests who drink wine. Maybe they eventually will have to be a warning label on that on that uh, container as because well, saying that this can cause. Yes, <laughs> precisely. And and I think um, I think it's also important to note that ultimately um, we can argue a lot about the studies of eye tracking and how effective these are. But I think it's also important for consumers to speak up about. Um, sort of the principle of the matter it's like yeah we 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 have vices and we we do those in moderation and we educate children and young adults on the correct use of these things and i think that's why parenting is so important um and also we like beautiful things i think interestingly that's sort of the 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 almost like the french argument on on these labels is that um, this also just ruins the way a wine bottle looks. And we do have a right to appreciate nice things. And a nice French bottle of wine with a, with a beautiful label, just destroying that for some feel-good measure that wouldn't even be effective and is very paternalistic. I think it's also good to push back on this, like, to say that we like this. You know, We just like this, and you shouldn't take that away from us. Uh, Bill, that reminds me of a... Um perhaps a renaissance when we have a callback to an old Consumer Choice Center campaign, Brands Matter. Uh, I think that's, uh, I mean, in that it was more talking about intellectual property, but I think you're definitely right. And in many of these different countries, you know, we've had more open trade. We have all kinds of different products coming in. You know, you have the right as an entrepreneur, as a company, to distinguish yourself from your competitors. And uh, we saw that in Canada when cannabis was legalized. You know, 80% of the package is just the warning label and your logo, you know, can only be, let's imagine 30 by 30 pixels where nobody can see it and you can have no brand recognition. So everybody just chooses either, you know, the lower cost one or the one that's closer to them on the counter. Um, these are the kind of issues that, that people create and consumers want to have a plethora of options. They want to be able to choose. They want to be able to look at the different brands. You know, the Super Bowl just happened in the United States and people are very excited about commercials and knowing about which products are coming out and what they can use, you know, when they go to the grocery store and, you know, these kind of things matter. Labels matter, brands matter. Um, and all of these are pretty much important for how our societies work today. And it's why I like doing what we do, Bill. Um, but we'll hear more about that here on Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this break. Stay tuned. We've got Bill Vietz, the host of the Consumer Podcast. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio here with uh, Bill Vietz. He's the host of the Consumer Podcast. Um, all things Consumer Choice across the European Union, for those of you who are a bit Euro-curious. Uh, I know that describes some of you, admit it. Um, as a reminder, this is a podcasting 2.0 experience so those of you who have downloaded a brand new podcasting app over there on newpodcastapps.com congratulations you're able to see our chapters you're able to send value for value using bitcoin lightning if you are interested and yes i know i know bitcoin but it's something interesting new and innovative and we uh, stand for tech innovation that's why we discuss that there uh bill there's another topic that is sort of looming there like a big elephant in the room or like a big balloon in the room. 
Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to talk about that, but uh, over the United States and Canada in the past uh, two weeks or so, uh, there have been many instances of uh, unidentified flying aircraft or objects uh, that have been shot down. I am not here to speculate. I don't really care about the alien narrative. Um, what I do care about are bumbling governments trying to explain things. And I don't know how to describe exactly what's happening apart from probably the notion that the Chinese Communist Party has had a hand in this and basically have been able to do this for many years and have never faced any kind of pushback. Um, my kind of speculation is because the first balloon, if you know what you're talking about, it's just the balloon that was shot off the coast of South Carolina and then a couple other objects shot over in Alaska and over whatever, Lake Michigan or something like this. Uh, my assumption is uh, basically until this was seen by the naked eye by somebody on the ground who filmed it, I think in Montana, uh, the government was just going to let it go. But once they saw it, now the government has to react a lot and they got to shoot everything down in the sky. And uh, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but um, just shows that the sort of uh, Cold War uh, with the Chinese Communist Party is kind of heating up. And uh, this could lead into many bad directions. I mean, for the conspiracies, I do enjoy the idea that uh, aliens are sending UFOs and the first place they want to check out is Montana and Alaska. Um, but we, I, I think, I think there's, 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 no, there's no UFOs from outer space there. I think it's just incompetence based from, from, the, from the countries that are, that are sending these spy balloons. And I think this, this gets back to sometimes overstating the sophistication of some of these countries. Um, one of the issues of, of dictatorships, of which China is absolutely one, is that there's, there's very few naysayers or people who voice criticism within the government structure. So um, blame gets pushed around. Nobody wants to be responsible for something because it costs, could cost, cost you a head. And then mistakes get made because there's no oversight. And then sometimes uh, these things just go wrong. And it's, it's just what that is, you know, these... Um, these balloons were, were intercepted. And uh, I mean, China didn't even do a very good job at trying to excuse it away, which makes it so obvious uh, it, was, it was them. Um, a lot of that happens even on, the, on the, uh, the, the allied side as well. So I read this piece not too long ago that showed that uh, even, even countries that are allied with the United States do try to spy on the US. What happens in those cases is that those spies get picked up and quietly sent back. Uh, I think some of that happens as well um, with uh, with China and Russia, or at least used to happen, where these things get intercepted and then not broadcasted, and then essentially the U.S. buys favors in order not to publicize it. So we don't exactly know what the U.S. government might get in return. Sometimes somebody gets released, and that might have been a negotiation not to publicize a spy balloon as such. And I think you mentioned there is because it was seen because it was now so much in the news, there was not really anything you could do about it. I think the, the visit by, uh, by, by, by Mr. Blinken, who was supposed to go to, uh, to, to China, was still planned up until it became public knowledge that that was a Chinese spy balloon. And then he had to cancel. So a lot of that is like sort of inside diplomacy that much of that we just don't know about. But I, you know, I, I don't think there's some uh, outer space uh, visitors coming for us. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's in Hollywood-esque. The first place they have to visit is the United States, right? It's not, uh, they're not seen over, you know, 
uh, Chile or Indonesia or something like that. They got to go right to the U.S., right to the bad guys, uh, just like that. Well, it's a bit theatrical, you know, that's um, the interesting thing about this. And, you know, I've been a political observer for many years, Bill, uh, much as you have, uh, perhaps by the, the gray hairs in my beard a bit more than you. But I, I find it, you know, increasingly interesting. Uh, there's a book that I love called um, The Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry. I spoke about this recently on another program. But in that book, uh, it really the main thesis is that we live in this hyper-normalization age. Everyone has phones and cameras and social media networks. And what it means for the political and economic elites is that they cannot present this narrative of credibility, of control, and everything that they do is not about planning, it's just reacting to public fervor. And in a way, that has given more power to the public, you know, not in an organized fashion, um, in that we have you know, specific laws that are passed, but that you at least have a reaction from elites. And oftentimes, uh, from what we've noticed in our work at the Consumer Choice Center, is oftentimes they go a bit overboard. You know, whether it be the so-called vaping crisis, you know, when you've got a um, small number of people who are doing that as kids, instead of looking for cigarettes, they find vape devices, and now they want to ban all of this for all adults. And you have this overreaction that is irrational, and I don't know what it's going to mean for the balloon or uh, anything else. I know that there's, there are a lot of important issues that we could tackle when it comes to uh, China, the CCP, and, and particularly um, app stores, you know, different types of applications that they're now using to collect information, localization services, all this kind of stuff. And I just, I fear the overreaction part. And I think that's just kind of what the government's doing now. I mean, even Trudeau is somehow involved. You know, he gets on there and talk about a guy who's just reacting to everything. I mean, as we, we've uh, spoken at length at this program, and, and those of you who are listening on Saga 960 AM uh, know very well the issues with Justin Trudeau. Um, his regime, uh, his administration, as it were, um, and many of the bad actors who are there. Uh, I'm just specifically thinking of, um, I believe his name is Mark Garrison. Uh, he is a, a liberal MP. I, he used, uh, no, sorry, Mark Gerritston. He's the absolute worst Twitter troll who somehow found his way into uh, the government. Uh, he is likely one of the worst actors in Canadian politics. And I only mention that just because I tweeted at him um, today, but <laughs> just to know that a lot of the uh, people who are in power are not, uh, not there because they're the most sort of authoritative or because they're the smartest. Uh, they're just kind of there uh, because of the luck of the draw, and they won't necessarily have the most competent answers uh, to react to things. I mean, there's, I think there's two things here. I mean, one part is the, uh, the information uh, economy in which, you know, we now have access to instant information so we find out things sometimes before the government is able to know them um, that is one part and then the other part is that um, which also relates to the reason why people are so polarized is because they uh, the government just does so much now the government is involved in everything there's a department for everything and so the expectation is also that the government ought to be able to solve all those problems i mean especially look at european countries if you're in belgium and you give 60 percent of your income away to the government you expect that organization to solve most of your problems it just turns out that the more money it has it actually becomes quite inefficient at solving these problems but still people look politically towards government solutions on this and now when you have access to the premiership or the the presidency um, you have a lot of power 
power to change social transfers, to, 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 to govern policy in that sense, but also to change school curricula, uh, which influences how uh, children are educated. And, and that will sort of shape the future of politics as well. So that's why people are so polarized, because getting access to power gives you so much more power now than it would have done in the 1960s, for instance. Right? So, so that, is, that is why people expect so much and are so polarized in trying to get their guy to access uh, the presidency. And I think that's an important factor as to like, how these things are treated now, even, on a, even when, you, when it comes to these like, spy balloons, you know, when previously you would have been expected that uh, this is a government matter, they'll handle this quietly, they'll find the best solution. Now everybody wants to be involved on one hand because, well, they, they think they're experts, uh, that's one part, but also because um, they find they try and find a way to blame this on the candidate they don't like. It's like, oh, how how did Biden do this wrong? So we can then lobby for our guy to be the next president. So that's so that that that's that's part of what's going on here in my mind. Or gal, Bill, let's not be sexist. That's true. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, well, Bill, one thing that you cover um, very extensively, and you do a great job, and provide reams of information data. Uh, articles is on the, the topic of agriculture. And I, I would say this falls into uh, sort of the environment and everything else. Uh, one topic that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, uh, right before Christmas, is uh, forestry, uh, particularly forest management. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussions in uh, countries like Canada and the United States about what are uh, the best and most modern forest management practices. And there's been a lot of misinformation from some of the the NGOs, and and there's just not a, a real. The problem is there's a lot of urban folks, meaning people in cities who don't venture out into the nature, uh, apart from you know a guided tour, um, that seem to have an idea about what forestry is, about what agricultural production is, and there are all kinds of issues that, unfortunately, mean that. We're making life a bit more difficult for everyone in the world because of these very unique interests of people who don't have experience. And um, I know that you, you tweeted out an article recently about agricultural production, um, climate change, and the idea that, you know, if we still farmed how we did 60 years ago, uh, we would have to burn down way more forest. We'd have to clear way more land. And that actually the modern agricultural practice, practices we have today are so much more efficient, leave us so much better off, that the fact that anyone is questioning them should, uh, should really give us pause. Right. The actual number here, and that's quite interesting because you mentioned if we farmed the same way we did 60 years ago, we would need additional farmland. Uh, I mean, if, the, if we did this globally, we would need additional farmland the size of Russia. Now, Russia's the... The largest country in the world has 10 time zones. It's, it's massive. I think this is uh, more than twice the size of the Amazon uh, rainforest that would have to be cut down. Um, for a very long time, agriculture and forestry were at odds. You know, we need more land in order to make more food. And we've come to a point where that's not true anymore because we're more efficient in, in, in the way we use uh, our, our soil. And there's a lot of practices that help that. Um, actually, both on the organic side and the conventional farming side, it just turns out that conventional farming tends to be a lot more efficient. And that is also why the U.S. 
farming system is a lot more efficient than the European one. There's another thing on forestry, which is that you know um, naturally the, the the ecosystem is in balance. You know, if there's no people on the planet, the ecosystem has a balance of which animals uh, eat other animals, and that you know there's 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 no as long as there's no influence, there's no repercussions. But we want humans on a planet. I think most people will agree on that, unless you're uh, was this, uh, Rob Paul Ehrlich. I think most people do want people uh, on the planet. And yeah, we do cause some disruption. So it becomes a bit more complicated how to remedy that. Do you kill the wolves? Do you kill the badgers? For those of you who watched the second season of Clarkson's Farm, um, uh, he, he addresses some of those issues because uh, his cows get uh, bovine tuberculosis uh, because, uh, because the existence of badgers. And badgers cannot be killed in the United States, uh, even though they transmit disease. So there's a lot of very complicated questions to ask. And the, if, if your only solution is that you should not interfere with nature whatsoever, you are actually um, intervening more in that balance than, than, than what is good. So, so we need to um, have a sober approach to how we go about this. We need to become more efficient and understand the ecosystem better. Yeah, as we live all in our concrete jungles, uh, say that we, we don't uh, want to displace nature. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, of great points that are made in the book by Alex Epstein, Fossil Future, uh, which I highly recommend. I just finished that a couple of weeks ago and um, has really changed my thinking. I mean, not necessarily changed my thinking, but it's given me a better framework to think about that because there's a kind of uniqueness in the human species in that we're able to master our own destiny. You know, we're able to come up with products and solutions, we're able actually able to change things for the better, for the positive. And I think, unfortunately, too many people are uh, not in on that game and uh, would, would love to see less human uh, interference uh, so that we could actually have a better future. But we'll talk more about that and other topics here on Consumer Choice Radio. Continue listening here, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. back to Consumer Choice Radio. That music, by the way, is by a uh, wonderful Slovakian artist known as Richard Durana. Um, I'll link to his uh, Spotify page in the show notes. You guys can uh, listen to that. Uh, go on over to our website, consumerchoicecenter.org slash radio. We're there for you. Yael Lasowski here with my colleague, Bill Vietz. Bill, we talked a little bit about the environment and uh, the uh, entire notion of uh, trying to replace nature or this kind of balance between nature and, and perhaps humans having a terrible negative effect on it. And uh, you brought up a very good point, you know, that there is certain things in the ecosystems that are naturally not balanced. And there are big questions, a big one for me, and maybe you can answer this uh, question because I know you've thought about this. Uh, mosquitoes in the ecosystem provide some kind of value, right? There's no value to me. Uh, there's a lot of harm, there's a lot of itching, <laughs> there's a lot of bumps, but they have some general purpose in the ecosystem. Is that true? Or what would happen if we were to zap all mosquitoes tomorrow? Ooh, I'm not sure if I'm 
qualified enough to answer the question what would happen if we got rid of all mosquitoes i mean there, there's definitely been that attempt you know back when ddt and ddt by the way is still being used i remember when i spent a, a longer amount of time in istanbul i wondered why there were so few flies mosquitoes and spiders and i found out by walking down the street and having the ddt van go down the street you'd have to, have to hold your breath while it was going past you um, so some countries are still using that. I think there's some reasonable um, um, uh, case to be made why it should not be allowed, even though there's use cases where it's uh, necessary. I mean, African uh, developing nations that had a big malaria problem definitely, definitely know why. Um, but I actually think that the idea that we, even in the case of malaria, need to get rid of the mosquitoes altogether in order to solve the problems of both inconvenience and disease is actually not the case anymore. We are now actually able, uh, this is still in the experimental phase, but they're now genetically modifying mosquitoes um, to be unable to transmit uh, diseases. You can actually do that. And actually, um, um, the, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been heavily invested in, in trying to achieve that um, a foundation, which, by the way, has, has successfully eliminated um, uh, malaria in, in, in a number of African uh, countries that are now malaria-free because of them. And, and I think that's, that's, that's grandiose work. And, you know, that we, need, we need some more of that. So, um, when we talk about that balance, we do have an influence where we can, where it's not a zero-sum game. We don't need to eradicate a species completely in order to have our way. Uh, there are there are a lot of technological middle grounds. Well, uh, I need to order some of that on Prime right now. Faster Prime, Prime now. I'd love to have some of that. Uh, I, I still have some bites from like, I want to say six months ago, you know, that I can still see. So uh, very interesting, though. And I'm going to I'm about to make a, uh, what we like to call in the business bill, a hell of a transition. Uh, but mentioning uh, malaria and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they are practitioners, I believe, of effective altruism. Is that correct? You would say? I'm not. I'm not sure uh, about the definitions of that would all fit. I'll, I'll, I'll take your lead on that. Okay. Well, that it's more uh, the the philosophical movement known as effective altruism. Um, the idea that you can be very practical with uh, philanthropic giving, and uh, by concentrating on certain measures, uh, you can have more of an impact. Um, for instance, if you want to help the climate, uh, the best thing to do is to donate to uh, save the rainforests in you know South America. Or if you would like to uh, make sure that more people are living, uh, you just donate a bunch of mosquito nets uh, on the African continent so people don't get malaria and this kind of thing. And it's a very targeted type of giving. Um, effective altruism uh, was all the rage, I think, the last decade. Uh, it was mostly focused in the United Kingdom. Um, it is something that Bjorn Lomborg, the political scientist, uh, writes a lot about um, in his works on the environment in that. You know, there are very effective ways that you can do things. A lot of charitable giving is probably wasted. Um, none of that, by the way, to consumerchoicecenter.org, but to many different outfits, very true. And uh, one effective altruist of note, Sam Bankman fried noted uh, cryptocurrency entrepreneur. Putin is bad, very, very, very bad, but he's still better than the guy who brings every conversation around to Bitcoin. Now, not Bitcoin per se, uh, but getting into Sam Bankman fried and uh, effective altruism, that's probably not a good transition, was it? 
get a bit. Um, I mean, you connected you connected it somewhat, but I mean, he's he's quite he's quite he's quite an interesting character. I mean, he was definitely not engaged with uh, too much humanitarian help. It seems to me that he was more engaged in uh, political donations that would help his cause. And, oh yeah, and I no, no, he did humanitarian, but the human he was helping was was him. <laughs> So why why do I bring up Sam Bankman-Fried all these months later? And of course, we've covered FTX extensively here on the program. Uh, well, actually, we have the names now of the two individuals who fronted the money uh, to get Mr. Bankman-Fried out on bail. Um, the bail was is actually not too high. It was five hundred thousand dollars, which, when you compare that to the you know alleged thirty-seven billion that was wiped. Uh, from his company and from the customer deposits is a sort of drop in the pond. Uh, but the two individuals who signed this bond and uh, who were able to front the money for uh, Mr. Bankman Free while he awaits trial uh, are none other than two Stanford academics. I tell you, the university is uh, paying top dollar now if uh, two prof two profs can front, you know, half a mil. Uh, but apparently it's, uh, we've got the former dean of the Stanford Law School. And then um, Andreas Papke is a senior research scientist at the university. So they both uh, are professors um, there at the school. Um, Sam Bankman's Freed's parents uh, were also professors at that law school. And they're the ones who fronted the money. Um, so this is, uh, it's very interesting. This is uh, just one of the bonds uh, for... Sam Bankman Freed, he's got another one in federal court. Uh, but to, to know that, you know, it was kind of a big question of if this guy really has no money, as he has been claiming, uh, how is he able to front the money for this bond? Well, now we know. So um, academia, it seems, really pays the bills and um, it can pay the, the bonds as well if you get caught up in uh, legal action. And I think on top of that, it kind of shows that um, it sometimes can be a bit complicated to uh, try and focus on just one person at the head of an organization and blame that person for the entirety of the, the problem. Because, um, not because that might not be true, but because it sort of, um, uh, it, it shifts the focus away from the fact that, you know, when it comes to these type of um, um, issues, there's more than one person involved. And when the public focus is on one specific uh, individual, then it, 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 it can also shift the focus of law enforcement to just that person while a lot of other people might be involved and get away. I mean, what, also, what, what often happens with these kind of investigations, which is also why I think the FBI um, uh, initially let him, quote unquote, get away, is because they're gathering evidence. And, uh, and of course, because there's a political nature in those investigations, uh, you gather evidence mostly on the people that if you arrest them, there's, a, there's public support for, oh, you got the person. While the, the people behind it, a lot of, other, a lot of the other people involved might, might be able to get away because you only have a certain time window where the information is still fresh, where you can gather a lot of that information. So it's important to, to know that, um, especially with this, with this bail being made, that there, there are probably more people involved that we should focus on. I love that. Uh, we're going to get into show recommendation territory here, Bill. I've got two of them um, that you uh, you brought to mind. Uh, first one, by the way, is one of the greatest television series of all time. Only one season. It ran on AMC, uh, the same network that brought us Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, and this show was actually the one that was sort of uh, introduced right after that and did not necessarily have the punch of Mad Men or the, the thrill of Breaking Bad, but it's called Rubicon. 
and it's about sort of the intelligence industry apparatus in the United States. Um, so it's sort of a, a think tank, wink, wink, um, that receives money from government and does a lot of research. And there's sort of a cabal conspiracy angle. And it, it's very true. It relates to that because, you know, we might all look at the, the, the top, you know, at the, the CEO. But, you know, there's all these things that are happening at the bottom that uh, people are, are willing uh, perpetrators in. And, you know, maybe they don't know necessarily that they're breaking some law, but, you know, still they're being led in that direction. Um, another program is Billions. You watch Billions, by the way? Great program. Uh, so I think this I have on. not yet, no. Oh, you have it. So it's on Showtime. We're about six seasons. I think it might still be ongoing, but this is about Bobby Axelrod. So he's a sort of a, a hedge fund manager in New York. You have Paul Giamatti, who's the uh, attorney general there in, uh, I think, the Southern District of New York. And it's essentially about, you know, whatever financial fraud investments, you know, they, they kind of uh, cook a couple things like that and cook the books. And the assumption is always that, you know, Bobby Axelrod, he's the one who's getting all the inside info or he's cooking up certain things. And that is making all of the illegal activity. It's all focused on him when in reality it's throughout the firm. You know, everybody was acting on this information. Everybody was handing this out to clients. So in a way, yeah, you can try to cut off the, the head of the snake, but the entire snake was pretty rotten. I'd have some recommendations as well, actually, uh, hit for, me, for, hit me. for the listeners. I'm currently watching The Patient, uh, available on Hulu uh, with Steve Carell. It's a, it's a story of, um, of a, not a real story, I at least hope so, where a psychiatrist gets held hostage by one of his patients. And uh, the, the, the hostage taker, the, the patient, is somebody who has an inclination to kill people and tries to ha get the psychiatrist to help him stop. Uh, it's a very, uh, very suspenseful uh, show, very interesting. And I'm currently watching the uh, second season of Godfather of Harlem as well with Forrest Whitaker, uh, which is a bit of a, um, bit of a, a bit of a Soprano-style um, story about uh, drug traffickers in Harlem in the in the 1960s. Malcolm X is featured as well in that. So there's a lot of the civil rights aspects of it, but also of the of the, the heroin trade back in the back in the 60s. So a very interesting show there. I think it's an epics production, but I think it uh, it's it's shown on Disney Plus. Oh, it reminds. I thought you were going to say the, um, the mentioning the patient. I thought you were going to say the shrink next door, the one with uh, Will Ferrell. I don't know if you've seen those previews. Oh, on on, uh, on Apple TV Plus. I did watch that. It's it's a very good, very true story as well. A quite quite fan quite fantastic type of story um, with a lot of humor and uh, and, uh, and and a lot of uh, inside baseball as well for the people who know New York very well. Oh, another show about New York. I'm so tired of this. Uh, I love, by the way, and this is what tax credits will get you. I love that more series and movies and stuff are set in places like Georgia and um, southern states and things like that. It, it at least changes it up because for a long time it was in Seattle, but they were really in Vancouver or they're in New York, but they're really in Toronto. And now they're in Georgia and they really are in Georgia. So there have been a lot of great programs. And uh, Bill, I did just wrap up a good program as well that you recommended, The Boys. Fantastic was, uh, show. Don't watch it with your children. It was very diabolical. I uh, really loved it. Um, Many parts of it. I, I think it's very cool, and of course, it's based on a um, what do you call it? Graphic novel. Um, is it graphic novel or comic book, or is it the same? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I think I think it is a um, graphic novel. Um, I actually read graphic novels in college that were recommended by professors. We actually, uh, there's some really good ones. But uh, that show is amazing because it just takes an entire genre and uh, flips it on his head. And I am not a, a Marvel person or DC or, you know, I don't even know what Avengers, I don't even know who's in that. Uh, but, you know, I'm familiar enough with the genre that to see <laughs> this program uh, was great. I think it's it's excellent writing, very good. I mean, to live in this world uh, would would indeed be a very scary place. And um, of course, you always got to have a bad company, bad CEO. You know, this is the, the trope of the, the evil corporation. Um, Mr. Robot, you know, much the same there. It's actually literally called E-Corp, Evil Corp. Uh, but but uh, that was a great program too, Bill. So thank you for the recommendation on uh, that one. Absolutely. And the inspiration for our intro music at the Consumer Podcast. And then one last recommendation, because we've only talked about American shows. And, you know, as, as the European on the program, I do want to recommend The Club Kulüp in, um, in Turkish. It's a Turkish Netflix show about the mid-19th century in Istanbul. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's about a club uh, with, uh, with a lot of dance and music, but also it tells the story of how uh, Jewish people, unfortunately, were, were quite discriminated against back in Turkey at that time and, uh, and uh, were essentially deprived of their savings. Okay, wow. Well, there's not, yeah, there's so many Turkish te- uh, television shows now. I don't know what happened there, if there was like a boon in production investment, who knows? Uh, cool, we'll add that to the list. Well, Bia Vietz, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we'll um, click on over to your uh, your podcast, Consumer, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon, my man. Thanks. Cheers. Oh,